What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Bitcoin Source Podcast. Today, we have a distinguished guest with us, Mr. Greg Foss, a seasoned financial markets professional with extensive knowledge in trading high-yield credit. Um, as the CFO and Bitcoin strategist, Greg brings a wealth of knowledge and insight to our discussion today about Bitcoin. So let's start getting into some really in- interesting questions. And Greg, there's tons of things I want to talk about. So thank you for coming on the show today. Um, great to meet you, my friend. Um, you know, I'll be very honest. It's uh, it's my honor to be on your podcast. Most important reason is this podcast. I want to be uh, supportive of uh, women. I want to be supportive of uh, non-white. I want to be supportive of white because Bitcoin doesn't care. And I haven't been on that many. I know Lamar, uh, but I've never done a podcast with him. Um, I've been on some women's podcasts. This is going to be my first podcast I've been on. Uh, you know, we'll call you a non-white, fat, 60-year-old guy from TradFi like I am. Okay, so uh, this is uh, this is good. Um, so let's get into it. How can uh, how can I help Orange Bill more people uh, based on my experience in the markets? Most definitely. And Greg, you know, you're like an OG in this space. So my first question for you is, you know, with your background in financial markets, what initially caught your attention and led you to explore Bitcoin as an investment opportunity? So that's a, it's a pretty deep question, but it's, it's going to, uh, it, it all comes together. So I'll, I'll tell the audience a little bit about myself. I'm a, I'm a Canadian. Um, I went to engineering school in, uh, in Montreal, my hometown, Montreal, Canada has a pretty good university called McGill. Uh, we actually get quite a few Bostonians who come up there because they think of it as an Ivy League school, but in Canada. So it's not quite as expensive for Americans to go to McGill. Uh, top-notch engineering school. And I went there and I actually went there more to focus on sports than engineering. Even though I was smart enough to do engineering, I knew I never wanted to be a full-time engineer. After about two weeks in engineering school, I'm like, man, this stuff is is brilliant, but I'm not that smart. I mean, I'm good enough to uh, be a solid B plus student, but I was focusing on sports, as I said. So then um, four years basically went in a blink of an eye. And in my fourth year, I found myself, well, sports are over. I don't want to be an engineer. What the heck am I going to do? And one of my fraternity mates was writing what's called the GMAT, the graduate management admissions test for business schools. And I'm like, well, when do you have to write this thing? Uh, You want to go to a business school? And I just got in at the last moment uh, to writing the GMAT. And I actually studied pretty hard for it. So I did quite well. And it was good enough to get accepted at one school, the only school I applied to in the United States, which was Cornell University in upstate New York. And uh, incredible good experience in my life. I would not have been accepted if I was American. Because while my grades were good enough in engineering and my GMAT was quite strong, I had no work experience. But because I was Canadian and they were trying to build an international business program, uh, I passed. I, I checked that box and I got accepted as one of the younger, uh, probably the youngest classmate in that class. The year was 1986. And incidentally, as an aside, one of my best buddies was from Duxbury, Massachusetts. Okay, just down the Cape. Uh, so I love Boston. I, I worked in Boston. My good friend lives in Duxbury still. Um, and uh, 
shout out to uh, Boston is Bitcoin. Okay. Boston is Bitcoin and New York is fiat and uh, New York can go pound sand. Okay. Because Boston has it all figured out. So I go to Cornell two years goes pretty quickly there as well. And I have a chance to work on wall street, but I decided I wanted to come to, back to Canada and I got a job with Canada's largest financial institution, uh, which was, and still is the Royal bank of Canada. And Dadu, the first project, I was working directly for the CFO. Okay. So it was a pretty high powered uh, group that I was working for. It was a special situations group that I got it hired into. And incidentally, for the Bostonians out there, my boss was another Canadian, but he had gone to Harvard. Okay. So we had a Harvard guy, uh, not to say that the, you know, those schools are so great, but we have a little bit of international business school exposure back in Canada. And we're both working directly for the CFO. And one of my first projects was the Latin American debt crisis, the bonds, or excuse me, the loans at the time that the Royal Bank had made to lesser developed countries called LDC countries. Um, and they were primarily, or the biggest exposure was to uh, South American countries, Mexico and Brazil in particular. But Argentina was a problem. And then there was all sorts of other countries uh, around the world, like the Philippines and Vietnam. There were 44 different countries that were classified as lesser developed debt that was a problem. Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady in the U.S. had designed a plan to help solve this problem because it wasn't just the Royal Bank that had this problem. So did all money center banks in the United States and they needed a way out of this jam because the loans were trading at 25 cents on the dollar, which meant you made a loan at hundred cents on the dollar. It was a five-year loan. The country stopped paying. People are selling this, these obligations because they want them off their balance sheets. And the trading price was 25 cents on the dollar. And it wasn't huge volume, but it at least was a mark to market number. And if you were to take that number and there were trading prices for all the debt as well, but the average price was strangely right around 25 cents. If you were to take that number, multiply it by the outstanding loan obligations or loan exposure of the Royal Bank amongst all the different countries, and added up how much you would lose by marking down the portfolio. So it doesn't sound like a lot, but it was approximately $4 billion of total debt. A billion of it was to Mexico. $4 billion in total trading at $0.25 cents on the dollar means you have to write down $3 billion of a loss, right? Because $0.75 cents on, three, on $4 billion is your $3 billion loss. You take that loss and you write it off against book value of equity. And guess what? Book value of equity wasn't even $3 billion. Meaning, if you were to mark the loans to market, the Royal Bank of Canada has a negative book value, which in other words, they were insolvent. And I went to the CFO, this was back in 1988, and I said, Emil, we have a problem. And he says, I know, don't tell anybody. I just went through six years of school, two years of business school in the USA, the largest financial institution in Canada is insolvent and I'm not supposed to tell anybody. There's a problem. And the problem is the fiat system. But as long as the central banks can print money to bail out the banking system, the banks were too big to fail. So everybody knew about the too big to fail. And this was the same with money center banks in New York. So I'll name some off. 
Manufacturers Hanover. Notice it's not around anymore. It was acquired. Chase Manhattan. Notice it's not around anymore. It was acquired by JP Morgan. Bankers Trust. Chemical Bank. All of these banks had the same problems as the Royal Bank of Canada had. And over time, they get acquired because banking is a tremendously risky business. And if you mark to market the loan books of the banks, they would regularly be insolvent. And I'm like, what a Ponzi. This is outrageous. And that I'm 26 years old. I have a bunch of school debt. I'm not going to run to the Wall Street Journal and tell them anything that's going to get published. The only thing I'm going to figure is is not allow myself to work in financial markets for the rest of my history because I told the truth. So fast forward 30 years, I lived through four financial crises. In 2016, I, re I retired from the hedge fund business 30 years of managing credit, trading bonds, Latin American debt, high yield junk bonds, credit default swaps. I've done it all and I'm introduced to Bitcoin. 2016. And I'm like, ah, it's a Ponzi. It's got to be a Ponzi because the mainstream media tells me it's a Ponzi. But luckily, I listened. And I'm like, what? Okay, 21 million fixed supply. Okay. And then someone took me to something called, um, well, it showed the blockchain in action. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name. It's something like tradeblock.com or something like that that you could see the physical or the digital Bitcoin blockchain in action and all these transactions taking place. And I'm visual. I'm an engineer. And I'm like, oh, my God, no one controls this. Correct. There's only 21 million. Correct. This mempool is filling up with all of these different transactions that could represent a car. It could represent a cup of coffee because you see 26 bucks go across. You see $4,000 go across. You see $400,000 go across, just like today. But this was 2016. I'm like, this is beautiful. Oh, my God. This is the solution to the Fiat Ponzi I've been looking for for 30 years. Okay? It's living, breathing. 2016, it had a dollar price of about $1,000 of Bitcoin. So... Doing the math in my head, that's uh, a thousand times 21 million. That's, you know, 210. What is that? That's $21 billion market cap. Not insignificant, but still not huge. But I'm like, this thing is going to solve a lot of problems. And I started doing research. And every time I did research, I became to love it more and more. And I eventually thought of a process to value Bitcoin using credit default swaps. And that's basically my entire history. So I use credit default swaps, open market default swap spreads on sovereign debt to value Bitcoin because I view Bitcoin as anti-fiat. And if it's anti-fiat, that means you can calculate its intrinsic value by taking open market default swap rates on sovereign debt, multiplying it by the amount of sovereign debt of that nation, and then putting it in a basket of all fiat nations. And bingo, I have a price for Bitcoin in my head. You can believe it or not. And I'm like, damn, this thing's trading for $21 billion, and I can put a price on it at the time of over 
well, equating it to a dollar price of Bitcoin at the time, it was trading at a thousand bucks and I could come up with a price of it of over 40,000 per Bitcoin. I'm like, this is trading at one fortieth of its intrinsic value. I'm a buyer. And as I bought some, I learned more about it. And then I became more steadfast in my belief that Bitcoin is insurance on the Fiat Ponzi. And given my history in credit markets and credit markets being the most important markets in the world, that's how I get comfort that Bitcoin has true intrinsic value for someone like me. I don't need everybody else to debate whether it's digital gold or digital energy or digital insurance on the Fiat Ponzi. I don't care. I just know what it means to me. So then I wrote a paper on it, though, and that paper sort of vaulted me into prominence in the Bitcoin Twitter space. I mean, I got interviewed by Marty Bent and then Preston Pish and then Jeff Booth and I. And, and, and basically, I bring a trading floor mentality to the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem, which a lot of these other guys didn't have. Because, you know, first of all, I'm a bit of a wacko bond trader. I've been doing it for 30 years. I've been living through different financial crises. And every single time my resolve was tested on the fiat system because all they ever do is kick the can down the road. So Bitcoin is that solution and a long winded response, but I hope it helps. I come at everything with a credit market viewpoint. I've traded all sorts of credit instruments that most of the people in the world have not. I don't expect them to understand all of the intricacies of it. But I thought I brought another viewpoint to the uh, uh, discussion as to why Bitcoin is so beautiful. And that's what I've been doing. So for six years, uh, yeah, I've been uh, meeting great kids like you, uh, some older guys like uh, Max Kaiser, uh, a little bit older than me. There's not that many people that are older than me that love Bitcoin as much as I do. And the crazy thing is, you know, I get to meet people. I've already mentioned a few of them, but, you know, shout out again to Booth. To Preston Pish, to Marty Bent, to uh, Max and Stacy, to Saifedean. I mean, I never would have met to yourself, to, uh, you know, uh, this guy, Gen Z for BTC. He's a 13-year-old kid that lives down in, uh, in, in uh, Tampa, Florida. Damn, I never would have met these great people if it wasn't for Bitcoin, you know. And so that's why I love Bitcoin as insurance. I also love Bitcoin because of the people that are involved in the Bitcoin community. And most importantly, I love Bitcoin for the kids because I feel that my generation has really screwed up and pulled forward gains that should accrue to our kids. We're using them in the here and now because we're too fat and lazy to actually do, uh, you know, to admit that the system is broken and we have to fix the system. So. You know, you you give you used to work at J.P. Morgan. I have tremendous amount of respect for J.P. Morgan as a traditional financial institution. They were huge counterparties in a lot of the trades I did. In fact, the biggest trade I ever did in my life was with J.P. Morgan. Uh, and it was, you know, a $700 million trade at the time. But it went through J.P. Morgan. And I love the guys that work there. But I suggest they understand what a house of cards the total banking system is. Because of that's how fiat works. Fiat banks are the transfer mechanism in the fiat Ponzi. And we could get into all that math if you want. But I'm happy that you hit the glass ceiling. Because you know what? Unless we fix that system, it is over. 
because the mathematics just don't work anymore and we need to fix it. You know, Greg, so what, what I love about you and sometimes in this Bitcoin world, a lot of people can be very touchy feely about your approach. And I just think that it's really passion. It's really um, understanding that when you're transitioning from the, the traditional legacy market into Bitcoin, it's such a paradigm shift on your brain that um, looking at something that you said when you said you figured out the value proposition of Bitcoin at that early stage when it was a thousand bucks a coin, what has changed for you in these last, I don't know, eight or nine years where you're looking at Bitcoin pricing at 30,000 right now, we see a lot of suppression in the market. There's just weird things going on. Like, where's your thoughts on what the price should be right now, even though people hate price predictions. I love to hear your insight because you know the back-end fundamentals of a traditional asset and where its potential can grow. So I'm always curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I will start by saying this. Yes, I did get involved in Bitcoin when it was less than $1,000, but it is better value today at $30,000 on a risk-adjusted basis than it was back in the year 2016. And the reason for that is twofold. Firstly, the system is stronger and more resilient than it's ever been. So network difficulty, network hashing, higher than it's ever been. The system is still working, TikTok next block. The adoption rates are going parabolic, all of which are good for the network effect, which means that Bitcoin is less risky and on a price adjusted basis, better value today at $30,000 per Bitcoin than it was when I first got involved. Now, if you recall, I had run the calculation as to what Bitcoin should be worth back in 2016 and came up with a price of 40000 What has happened since then? The response by the global sovereign nations, debt nations, to COVID, the printing of money that has gone absolutely parabolic to the point where fiat is now 100% certain to debase. There is no mathematical escape from the debt spiral, which means you need to own hard assets. And if I take that new accumulated debt in the world and multiply it by the current CDS rates today, not eight years ago, Bitcoin is worth over $400,000. It was worth forty. dollars Now it's worth over $400,000 just because of what's happened in the last eight years with debt levels and the world tuning in to the fact that sovereign debt is risky. You know, you know that Argentina is a G20 nation, right? One of the 20th largest economies in the world. And when I first went to work at Royal Bank, it was one of the Latin American countries that had defaulted back in the 1980s. Guess what? It's now defaulted four more times since 1990. Argentina has defaulted five times in my career. Five times in the last 35 years. Ridiculous. Yes. True. Yes. Which means the Fiat Ponzi continues to dream up new scams to get more people to buy the bonds of Argentina for the fifth time after they defaulted the last four times. Can you imagine such a ridiculous fucking system? But that's the system we live in. So where do I think Bitcoin should be trading today? Well, it should be trading at least 400,000 US dollars per Bitcoin. But I think 
And I wouldn't be surprised if someday it trades at 2 million US dollars per Bitcoin in today's dollars. I need to be very clear about that. Measured in 2023 US dollars, it should be trading at 400,000, between 400,000 and 2 million. Which is to say, if it traded at 2 million, it wouldn't surprise me. And I could tell you how I get to the $2 million price target pretty easily. But it's just a function of total addressable market of global financial assets. And that's how I've always managed risk. You put a price target on something. You give it a probability of attaining that price target. You have a black swan scenario on the other side where it's worth zero. And you just do a what's called a binary outcome analysis. It's either worth this price or this price. Put a probability on each side. You get a expected value. And if it's trading at below its expected value, prob probability weighted, you have a good investment. Now, if the information changes, you change your probability weightings and you do the calculation again. But in my career studying Bitcoin, the probability of its success has only gone higher and the likelihood of it going to zero has only gone lower because of its sustainability, its adoption, its, its network uh, proof of work. I believe, again, that Bitcoin is a better investment today. Even though it's 30 times higher in price, the value is better today than it was eight years ago when I first got involved. So I hope that answers your question, which is to say, if you push me on a price target, I'll give you that target, but I won't tell you how long it's going to take to attain that target because I'm not going to do both. Okay. I'm not an idiot because markets exist to make you look stupid. So never give a target at a time, give a target or give a trend over time, but never give both. So number is going up Dadu. And if you pressed me, what's my target? 2 million bucks US per Bitcoin in today's dollars, but I'm not telling you by when. You can figure that out yourself. And if you need my help to figure that out, I'm, I'm done with you, okay? I've walked you down, I've walked you down the path far enough. If you can't make your mind up yourself, you know, in, in the famous Greg Foss loves you, GFY, right? GFY, I don't have time spending on you. I'm going to talk to people who get it. You know, you've stated in the past that if it's good enough to sell, it's good enough to short. And I want to hear your thoughts on collateralized Bitcoin and the importance of equity fund managers understanding how. So interestingly, the people that tend to gronk Bitcoin from the equity side are the technology funds, you know, funds that focus on. Yeah. Uh, AI, this was prior to AI, those funds that focused on the Microsofts of the world, the Google, the search engine optimization, uh, all of that, uh, they got Bitcoin, but not in a big way. But the people that I pitch that need to get Bitcoin are not the equity guys. Equity guys smoke fucking hopium, trees grow to the moon. These guys don't get it and they don't actually matter. Okay. Equity guys are a derivative of the credit markets. They're the tail. The credit markets run the world. And when the credit markets get sick, the equity markets get flung around like a rag doll. And if you don't believe me, go back to every single financial crisis where it's the credit guys that control the room. But when the credit guys are sleeping, which is eight out of every 10 years because credit markets are functioning well, the equity markets get around and they put a price target out on some stock and it hits their price target. So they have to adjust their price target higher, not because the fundamentals make it that it goes higher, but 
you know, trees grow to the moon, right? I'm an equity guy. Fuck this. Growth rates forever. Trees are going to grow to the moon. It doesn't work that way. It's credit markets that run the world. And it's the credit guys that I'm talking to. When I talk about credit default swap analysis, they get it. They also understand, and this is very important. When you lend money to the U.S. Treasury for 10 years, right now, today, you are highly likely but not certain to get your 4% coupon back for the next 10 years. That is a fiat contract. It's not going to change. Meaning if the United States starts doing better economically, they're not going to increase the coupon on the debt uh, to share the wealth with the, sh the equity hold, uh, the, the, the creditors. That's not how it works. And conversely, if things start going really poorly, the creditors aren't going to turn around and say, well, I'm going to cut you a break here, Mr. U.S. Treasury. You can't meet your interest obligation, so I'm going to reduce the interest obligation. It is a fixed contract. That's why it's called fixed income. Okay, Those are the idiots in the room that need to understand that you can lend your money to the U.S. Treasury for 10 years and earn 4% with a high degree of certainty, not 100%, because otherwise, why would there be credit default swap? insurance on the U.S. Treasury. But putting that aside, you get your 4% or $4 on every $100 back for 10 years. How did you get your $100 back in 10 years? What's your $100 worth in 10 years, Dadu? Not worth $100 that it was at time zero when you put your money into that bond. And that is the debasement of the currency that destroys the value proposition of investing in bonds. And that is why you need to own Bitcoin because fiat debasement, again, is 100% certain. The value of the U.S. dollar in 10 years is 100% certain to be lower than it has at time zero because they're going to have to print more money to satisfy the interest expense obligation on the U.S. Treasury bonds. There's no other way of paying that interest expense, that interest obligation. They have to print money, which means the value of the existing money goes down in value, which means the $100 that you lent at time zero in 10 years is worth a lot less than the $100 it was at time zero. Hence, you got to own Bitcoin as a hedge to your bond holdings. And since bonds and debt are the largest financial asset in the world, those are the guys that need Bitcoin more than the equity guys. Equity guys, I love you guys. You know, you're you're the uh, you know you're the fool in the room most of the time. But when markets are calm, yeah, you can pay forty five times sales for Nvidia just cause. Like I don't know, you guys. I know you're optimists and everything, but at a certain multiple of revenue, stocks do not make economic sense. But don't tell the markets that because right now they're all smoking the hopium of artificial intelligence and all that. Okay, this is the difference between credit guys and equity guys. But when the times get rough and it always starts in the credit markets, the equity guys get carried off and carted off the floor because it's the credit guys that rule the day. And um, that's what Bitcoin allows you to protect yourself against is the credit guys. And that's why I am so. You said the word passionate. Yeah, look, I'm a noisy trader. I'm bombastic. I do what I need to do to get the message across. Everybody needs to own Bitcoin because of the credit situation 
of the sovereign debtors of the world. Yeah, I agree with that 100%, Greg. And, you know, it's so crazy because, like, when you look at Sailor and what he's doing at MicroStrategy, it seems like every time Yellen or somebody raises the interest rate, you see 30 to 60 days later, MicroStrategy buys this large swath of Bitcoin, right? It's like he... He understands, and and it makes me think about what you said about the equity guys versus the credit guys. Of course, because he has a publicly traded company, he has to go in front of a, a table of investors and the people that you know keep their 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 stock happy, the stock owners happy. Um, Sailor has to go and say, hey, we want to invest in this thing. We don't want to buy bonds. We don't want to sit on our cash. We want to actually invest this into something that's going to continue to matriculate in value over time. And it just makes me think about people like yourself, where you're fighting in a room against a bunch of equity fund managers that don't understand what this is. They don't, in a lot of senses, want to understand what Bitcoin is, but you have guys like Sailor that are like blazing this trail to show these large institutions that instead of sitting on cash that's essentially withering away with the fiat standard, you could buy into Bitcoin, put it on your balance sheet, and use that as a form of a bond. We'll just say that in quotations, that is way sturdier, stronger, has a longer shelf life. And you can actually utilize that to um, offset some of the volatility that you're seeing in the market right now. Fiduciary responsibility is to all stakeholders, but the primary fiduciary responsibility of a CEO is to his equity holders. Um, Sailor is in a different position than most CEOs around the world, though, because he controls his board. He's a very large shareholder. And also his company is fairly small. Like I'm not belittling the accomplishments of Michael Saylor. I love the man. All right. I was on his uh, his boat in Miami and got to shake, uh, excuse me, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s hand. I mean, if not for Bitcoin, like how great is that, that an idiot Canadian can be in that environment? So Saylor's unique, but he's very, very smart. Incredibly smart, actually. He passionately believes what he's doing is correct as well for his stakeholders. And remember this, Saylor started off as being a Bitcoin is going to fail type of guy. And yet he did more research and he realized he was wrong. And that's what makes a good risk manager is changing your thesis when the information changes. Don't be like Peter Schiff, okay? Peter Schiff could have been the best performing gold fund manager or hard asset fund manager in the world if he had only put 1% of his fund in Bitcoin when Bitcoin was first introduced to him at what price? Oh yeah, $10, <laughs> 10 bucks. And Mr. Schiff is the smartest guy in the room because he's been telling you that Bitcoin's gonna fail since $10. And every time it goes from 60,000 down to 30,000, he says, see, I told you, Bitcoin is gonna fail. You're wrong, Peter Schiff. You're a shitty risk manager. Wake the fuck up. I've debated Peter Schiff on Peter McCormick's podcast. He admitted he does not care. Well, I don't want somebody who's managing money for me to admit he does not care about his unit holders. That is not a good risk manager. So I call him out. And I know one of the other things you're going to say is I frequently call out people and, you know, get myself into hot water. And I'm fine with it. Because when you work on a trading floor, you better be confident in your position or that jungle is going to eat you up. That's what a trading floor is. It's the survival of the fittest in a jungle called Wall Street. And call me 
whatever, a bombastic fool, a loudmouth schmuck from Canada. I don't care. I'm just trying to tell you, I believe passionately that this is the most important technological and financial innovation I have ever seen. And you need to understand it. And if you don't understand it, you are going to be Peter Schiff. Okay. And I don't want a world full of Peter Schiffs. I actually want a world full of Michael Sailors and you know what? People who are open-minded to changing their investment philosophy when the information changes. Is there, you know, when we talk about passion, right? You know, your passion has been well-documented and I know you've, t you've talked about this, right? And I've, I remember listening to that audio where it was like this big back and forth. And, you know, why do you think that Bitcoin is so important in particular um, for the kids and it shouldn't be considered a laughing matter? I thank you for diplomatically asking the question. Look, I care about it. I feel guilty. I feel a measure of guilt. I've done quite well. All right. On a fiat basis, I used my education and my privilege of being able to work on Wall Street and Bay Street. And I did well at it. It's not like I got paid for being an idiot. I did trades that made money consistently over my career, which allowed me to be rewarded. But the reality is most people aren't quite as lucky as I am. And the fiat system penalizes more people than it rewards. It really only rewards the people closest to the money printer like I was. So I feel guilty about that. I'm trying to wake as many people up and call bullshit when I see it. And if you refer to something like Udi and the Ordinals and everything that I had a, a conversation with, I have nothing against those guys because Bitcoin doesn't care. What I do have against those guys, and I mentioned this, is them dancing on the grave of Bitcoin and saying we broke Bitcoin when in fact that's just not true. The unfortunate thing was they did it right after the Robert F. Kennedy Bitcoin magazine center stage presentation where you get these guys that go on stage wearing wizard costumes and doing a stupid little fucking dance to say, we broke Bitcoin. That's all good. It was just the unfortunate timing right after RFK made quite an impassioned speech on behalf of Americans. They did not break Bitcoin. If you need proof, go back and look at TikTok next block and look at the sats per V-byte that it costs to get a transaction done now. TikTok next block. I think it's good that you tried to break Bitcoin, but don't say you broke it because that is not true. And for anybody who was tuning in and got information from Kennedy who said Bitcoin helps protect against things like the Canadian truckers, which was near and dear to my heart in Canada. And everybody's feeling, hey, this Bitcoin thing, it might have some legs. And then the very next thing was to see these two guys on stage. That's what I took exception to. But Bitcoin doesn't care. Bitcoin does not care about Greg Foss. Bitcoin does not care about Udi. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. And that's the beautiful thing. No CEO, no centralized control. TikTok next block. Let's move on. It's going to save the world because the world is a pretty messed up place right now. It's only mathematics. Most definitely. And, and you know, it, coming from the traditional banking system, I realize that timing is everything. And I truly understand that 
the timing is what's the problem, not the message, right? And, uh, you know, it's good for people to try to break Bitcoin because that gives it more of its resilience, right? It's actually designed in that way. But when you're talking about people coming from the political side or boomers or people that don't have great insight into what this digital asset is, they can be influenced by certain people putting out a certain message. And I think that the Bitcoin world now understands that. But initially, that passion, that fire that you had, it, it blew people away because they were like, well, what is Greg talking about? He's, he's well, my, my good friend, friend, my good friend, my, yeah, my good friend, uh, Dylan LeClaire, who's, uh, I'm not sure. How, yeah. You're older than him because you have to, well, maybe you don't have to be, but you're probably a little older than Dylan. I love the kid. Okay. And I love him like a, a son or a brother. doesn't matter. Uh, he called me unhinged, which is cool. Like if you've been, and I compared it to a hockey arena, that's okay. Like, and, and again, a lot, some of the things were taken out of context. Some of them weren't. I, I do not appreciate people telling, sending a message that they broke Bitcoin when that's not true. When Bitcoin is the savior for the Fiat Ponzi. And to his credit, Udi and I got on a podcast and I felt I wasn't emotionally unhinged, according to uh, Dylan. At the end of the day, he admitted he wants Bitcoin to succeed. And that's fine by me then. Because I want Bitcoin to succeed as well. And if he needs to get out there and pretend that he's... Anyway, let's leave that alone. It's not worth our time to talk about that because Bitcoin does not care. Uh, my rant was when I was going through Georgia and I had a little bit of uh, road rage on in my blood. And I had just listened to uh, uh, Robert Breedlove interviewing uh, our friend uh, Jason, uh, a.k.a. Uh, you know, the rocket scientist from MIT. And uh, I was a little pumped up. I'm like, man, this is good stuff. And then someone triggered me. Yeah, I was a trigger, you know, about these guys getting on stage. And I, I just talked like I was at a hockey game. Um, I won't apologize about my message. My message, I stand by my message. My delivery, nah, it could have been a little better, but I don't fucking care. Okay, I'm 60 years old. I've done a lot of stupid shit in my life. This one doesn't even rank up there with uh, a lot of the stupid shit I've done. And... A lot of them I regret, and that's why you live and learn. All I bring to the table, Dadu, is 35 years of mistakes. You better correct your mistakes and make sure it doesn't happen again. And my message is still the same. Bitcoin needs to succeed for the benefit of our children and our children's children. It's that simple. Yes. And, and, and my last segue to that, Greg, is, you know, looking ahead, right? What are your thoughts about the future of Bitcoin, both in terms of price trajectory, which we kind of went over a little bit, and its impact on the global financial landscape. Like, are there any milestones or developments that you anticipate in the near future that could shape, you know, Bitcoin's Bitcoin journey? Spot, I think ETF that's approved in the United States will be huge because what it essentially does is give Bitcoin a Q-SIP. And as you remember on a trading floor, every security or asset needs a Q-SIP in order to identify the trade item that is uh, transferring between JP Morgan, in your case, and BlackRock. If it has a QSIP, it fits into the system. The systems are all set up with QSIPs. It is very huge. Not your keys, not your coins, ultimately is the truth with Bitcoin. But I think a spot ETF is huge for adoption and is adoption trajectory continues higher, so will the price of Bitcoin and the beautiful uh, supply 
programmatic supply of Bitcoin is fixed. So I see uh, in the words of uh, Michael Saylor, it's going up, Laura. And it's going up because fiat currency is certain to go down. And if you don't measure it in fiat and you do measure it in your house, it's still going up. Meaning Bitcoin will outperform your house. It's going to outperform gold. It's going to outperform equities. It's going to outperform every other financial asset in the world because it's the most perfect hard asset ever created by man. And you need to own some. And if you own zero, you shouldn't be managing money because you haven't done your work and you don't understand how to manage risk. It's that simple. Yes. Well said, Greg. And, you know, I think that, you know, Gary Gensler is at the helm right now. There's a lot of politics going on, right? Um, BlackRock is filing, Fidelity's filing, um, Grayscale. There's everybody trying to jump into the fray here. And um, my thoughts on that is, do you believe, or I should say, I believe in a sense that um, it's a waiting game, right? I think that they're accumulating right now. I think Fidelity has been mining Bitcoin since 2016 or 17. So I think they're trying to get a, a honeypot where it gets to the point where they say, hey, buy your Bitcoin from us instead of going directly. You, you don't think that, Greg? I, I want to hear your Nobody's thoughts. Nobody's <laughs> rich enough to accumulate Bitcoin without having to uh, um, uh, report it to their fiduciary. Their fiduciary responsibility is to report it to their shareholders, right? So Fidelity, it's a private company, but BlackRock is a public company. If it was accumulating Bitcoin on the sly for its own account, it would have to report this to shareholders. And it's not. Like people think of BlackRock is going to be the person that's acquiring Bitcoin. No, it's the clients of BlackRock that are going to use the platform designed by BlackRock to accumulate Bitcoin. And BlackRock charges a fee. That's what BlackRock is, is a rent seeker to charge a fee on a fund that holds Bitcoin in it. But I don't believe that anyone's front running. Now, Fidelity, private company. I mean, yes, Abigail Johnson is a fan of Bitcoin. I don't know how much she may own, but she's not big enough to own 10% of a $500 billion asset, which is $50 billion, without people knowing it, that she's accumulated $50 billion. It's just impossible. Not impossible, but highly unlikely. So let's be careful about all these conspiracy theorists who say, oh, they're front-running us. They're not front-running you people. You are actually front-running them. And that should make you smile because you got on this train before they Even did. if I always think of it like this, right? There's a lot of adopters out there that have got onto Bitcoin since 2009. And then you can come in with a billion dollars and buy tons of Bitcoin in one instance and kind of, in a sense, front-run ahead of those people in the short term. But in the long term, if you dollar cost average and you just keep, you know, getting at it, you're ultimately going to have more of a stake than some of these larger institutions. And you have a better understanding of the of the protocols. So and I you think. understand it. And, and you're not uh, buying it to sell it. You're buying it to hold it and transfer. See, my Bitcoin is going to my children. And then I hope that they are responsible enough to save some for their children as well. Um, but I'm not owning Bitcoin at 30,000 to sell it at 40,000 and say, oh, I just scalped the fiat system at, for $10,000 per Bitcoin. No, stupid. Bitcoin is your insurance. You don't sell your fire insurance when you can see that the fire risk has actually gotten higher. It means the value of your insurance is actually more valuable. You don't sell it, knucklehead. You can manage it. You can 
you know, buy a little bit more when you think it's cheap. And if you need some liquidity, you sell some, but you don't get in and out. That is not how you manage risk. So I think we're on the same page there, my friend. Um, and this is why it's a, it's the great equalizer. Bitcoin is the great equalizer. So Bitcoin does not care. This is a good way to wrap it up. Doesn't care about fat white guys. Doesn't care about great, smart, young minds like you, like Dylan LeClaire. Doesn't care about the color of your skin, what religion you believe in, whether you're male or female or some other. Doesn't care. It's there for everybody. And that's why it's beautiful. Otherwise, you don't get that. I don't know. We don't have time for you, right, Dadu? Just see ya. Exactly. Once again, Greg Foss, brother, I thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was huge, monumental moment for me. So thank you for having this Bitcoin conversation, brother. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I look forward to doing it again, I hope. Okay.